Hey, Coiners, it's Dan here. How are you? Did you have a good holiday break? Sure hope you did. Roberta and I have been busy preparing for Season 7 of They Coined It. Today, however, we have a little break in the format, something we think you'll find interesting and hopefully will engage you in a story beyond our collective Mad Men obsession. If you heard our Thanksgiving episode, where we share some of our favorite shows and podcasts and movies, I mentioned a podcast called Bone Valley, which is about a man named Leo Schofield who has served over 30 years in prison in Florida for the murder of his wife, Michelle. Not only was Leo wrongly convicted, there's another man who has confessed to this murder, and the state of Florida refuses to acknowledge it, refuses to grant Leo a second trial based on solid evidence, physical evidence, as well as another man's confession. The investigation into Leo's case for Bone Valley was led by Pulitzer Prize-winning crime author Gilbert King. Roberta and I were lucky enough to speak with Gilbert a couple weeks ago and are sharing our conversation here. We talk about his experience making the podcast, the process of investigating this incredible and maddening case, as well as how a system can be so completely perverted and abused in a way that locks up the innocent and protects the corrupt. Bone Valley is fascinating. It's heartbreaking. It's an incredible story told with equal parts precision and heart. Bone Valley was named one of the best podcasts of the year by The New Yorker, Slate, New York Magazine, Vulture, and Paste. Roberta and I believe you'll find it as compelling as we did, and here is our interview with Gilbert King. So Gilbert, what I'd love for to be able to do for our listeners, if you could tell us about Bone Valley, what the podcast is, and the fact that you know, you're obviously getting a lot of attention for it right now. Give us a, a nice summary of the story, if you could, for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be interesting to know how I came to this project. I was doing a book talk down in Florida for a judicial conference. And so I had all these judges, hundreds of judges in Florida who were there listening. And I was talking about my book, Devil in the Grove. And afterwards, one of the judges came up to me with a business card. And I turned it over and it said the name Leo Schofield and his Department of Corrections number. And it said, not just wrongfully convicted, he's an innocent man. I looked up at him and he, he, he kind of signaled to call him sometime. And I didn't quite know what to make of this. You know, so a judge hands you a card about an innocent man in prison. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was at a dinner with some public defenders and I showed them the card that I'd gotten. And they all kind of passed it around. They all had this look on their face like, a judge gave you this? Are you kidding me? Like they knew it wasn't something that was not really supposed to happen. And finally, it came to this one guy who was from Polk County where this case took place. And he said to me, I, I know this case. You should call that judge. And so that kind of tipped me off that there was something going on. You know, I immediately started Googling it. A couple days later, I called him and he started to tell me the story of Leo Schofield, who was this 21-year-old heavy metal guitarist living in central Florida. And he was accused and convicted of murdering his wife. Michelle, an 18-year-old waitress, and he's always maintained his innocence. So this story, Leo's conviction, is what I set out to look into. The reason is because the judge basically told me that this guy was innocent. And I started looking into it, reading the trial transcripts, looking at the police reports. I could tell that, you know, from the, from the transcripts, he was wrongfully convicted. It's pretty obvious there. But there was something else the judge said to me that really caught my attention. He said, by the way, you know, 17 years after Leo's conviction, they identified some fingerprints in the car that Michelle was driving, and they match this convicted killer who's in another prison. And once he was matched, 
he ended up confessing to killing Michelle. And I said, well, but wait, Leo Schofield's still in prison. And he goes, that's the story. He's still in there. The state will not believe the confessions from Jeremy Scott. And so that's what I really set out to do, to to do the investigation that the state of Florida never really did. They were not interested in investigating Jeremy Scott. And I thought that that's where the story was. And so that's pretty much the story of Bone Valley. These two men who were tied to this murder of an 18-year-old waitress, Michelle Schofield, and how it all plays out. In what year? 1987, right? I mean... He's been in prison for 35 years. I mean, that's the thing. And, and um, you know, it, it's a question we really set out to is why is Leo Schofield still in prison when another man who's forensically tied to the crime scene has confessed? And so that was the story we set out to answer. The first thing I think from from that that was just interesting to me was like, oh, there's a real distinction between wrongfully convicted and innocent, that there's a huge gap between those two things that wrongfully convicted could be a plenty of murderers or plenty of criminals, but they just, it was procedurally negligent. Right. Like somebody who should not have been convicted based on the evidence, even right. though he may have been guilty, but this judge was saying, no, it's, he's not just wrongfully, he's an innocent man. And that sort of stuck out to me too, because he wasn't saying there was some, you know, constitutional issue that really this man should not have been convicted. Uh, he was telling me this is an innocent man. And that, that, you know, when you hear that, you just think, okay, let me look into this a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you're known as a writer, Pulitzer Prize winning. What turned this from being what I assume was another book research project to this? This is a podcast like we have to we have to tell this story uh, verbally. Yeah. And that's this is really interesting. I think you guys will appreciate this. So, you know, when I first talked to Judge Cup, I told him, like, hey, I'm working on a book and I don't know how long it's going to take me to finish this, but I got to finish this book. So it could be a it could be a couple of years. And I could just feel like the deflation in his voice when he's talking to me, like, uh, you know, Leo doesn't have years like he needs this story. Uh, you know, it, it was just like and he was trying to persuade me. And he finally just said, read the transcript. Just do me a favor. Just read the transcript because that's what hooked me and that's what hood sh- should hook everyone, he said. And I did. I started reading the transcript and I, I could see it. You know, I've read a lot of transcripts and I said, oh, you know, these prosecutors are kind of doing some misrepresentation of evidence. They're kind of cheating a little bit. Whenever I see that, I'm like, they might not be confident enough in their case. So they're cutting corners and you could see it in the trial. And uh, so I thought, all right, maybe this is like I'll write an article, a feature article about it, because I was I wasn't going to invest in a, another book. You know, like I, it's just I already had a book deal and I, I wanted to kind of finish that. But as I went down and I started interviewing people, including Leo, I came back with all this tape and I remember thinking, this is an unbelievable story and everybody's talking to me and I have, they're all alive. I'm not used to that. All my books are done in the forties. And and so everyone's dead. It can't really, I'm just dealing with documents. But in this case, I was getting these interviews and these stories, including Leo, who's a terrific storyteller. And I just remember thinking, I listened to a couple true crime podcasts that I really enjoyed and maybe I could do something like that. But, you know, not knowing anything. And I was working with a researcher who ended up being the audio sound person because she was like learning on the job because we're like, we're transitioning. We're doing a podcast now. And we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> wow. And that was Kelsey, your, your assistant. Yeah. Kelsey, who stuck with this the whole way through. Uh, you know, she started as a researcher and, you know, by the end, she's basically running the whole show, right? <laughs> she was terrific. Amazing. She's terrific. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to get in. You, you mentioned about, you know, visiting Leo in prison and, and sort of how this goes from 
suspect, accused, charged, convicted, which is you take us through it in the podcast so brilliantly. Here's a guy of not much in the way of means. They're they're living in a trailer as a young couple in Florida. You tell the story of how he chose his attorney, Jack Edmonds, for his trial. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there and I, re- I remember listening to it and and you're talking about you know, he's getting like jailhouse legal advice. Like, oh, you don't want to go with the public defender. That's that's a mistake, you know. And then later on you tell us about the public defender who I guess ironically solved another, you know, got got other uh defendants off of murder con- murder charges, you know, as well kind of almost redeeming their their credibility in the, in all of this. And I'm just interested in that that part of the story where, you know, if you're just, whether it's born on the wrong side of the tracks, not enough means, you know, we scraped together the money for what he thought was was a great uh, defense. It all went to dust for, for Leo in this. I mean, that, that seems to be part of the story, no? It really is. You know, I, I honestly wish we had done more with that because what, what one of the messages I really learned while I was working down in Polk County and doing all this research was that the public defender's office was amazing. They were known throughout the state as these experienced trial lawyers. They've been there for you know years, and they had very successful in, in a lot of cases that they won in Polk County in getting you know sometimes guilty people off, um, including Jeremy Scott. You know, Jeremy Scott was the same office. Oh, right, that was the, that, that's that, that was the case right. I was, I was right. alluding to. Oh my god! And gosh. you know, he gets he gets acquitted because he's got great lawyers and you know investigators, and he's got these resources of these public defenders. But, you know, after he gets acquitted, he's bragging about how he got away with murder, you know, so it was obviously that, you know, he was guilty of this crime, but, you know, he had good lawyers. Leo was told by, you know, Squeegee, another jailhouse guy, that, you know, you can't you can't go and put your life on the line with a public pretender. That's what they called public defenders. And, you know, the usual song and dance about, you know, they're just in it, uh, you know, pastime, they're bored, they have too many cases, they're not going to save your life. Well, that's... That, Which is conventional wisdom, right? right. I, I mean, mean that's, it, it yeah. is, you know, and especially, yeah, if you think like Jack Edmund, who's this flashy kind of lawyer who's very well known, like... Everyone's saying, you got to get Jack, you got to get Jack. And it's just really hard to resist that, I guess. Dan, you you mentioned jailhouse, you know, advice, right? But I think anybody without much knowledge, everybody kibitzes and says, don't take the public offender, take the take the shiny guy who knows how to win. Right. Yeah. Right. And it turns out the shiny guy, is, as you explained, was th- that's that's who he, that's who you get a plea bargain with. That's how you get less jail time than maybe if, you know, and, and Leo is not the guy who was going to take a plea or or or, you know, admit to anything, obviously. Yeah. And that was like one of the funnier quotes we had from like the current sheriff of Polk County, who like Grady Judd, who ended up eulogizing Jack Edmond at his funeral. And he said, oh, if if you're guilty, you definitely want Jack Edmond because he'll put on a show. He'll, you know, he'll he'll earn his money and he'll 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 Uh, put on a show. But if you're innocent, you have to rely on the law. You don't want Jack Edmond as your lawyer. Yeah, Supposedly a compliment. Right, right, right. right. And I was like, just like I could see how it happened to him. And, And normally it wouldn't have happened to Leo because he wouldn't have been able to afford Jack Edmond. But. Coincidentally, to his bad luck, um, not long before trial, he broke his neck. Uh, He was a passenger in a car and he had a $50,000 settlement coming his way. In 1987. Yes. And I think Jack Edmund probably said, that's cool. What a great moment, because that's exactly yeah, my yeah. fee. You know, I read about your case in the paper, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Oh, so he gosh. ended up getting Jack Edmund, who did no preparation, didn't interview witnesses, didn't even look at the police reports. That was like horrible. There was evidence in those police reports that really would have helped Leo's case, and he just actually ignored it. The entire 
series is it, it starts there where you're hearing negligence, but it, it, and it, and it just keeps going and it gets worse and it's evolves from negligence to what has to be corruption. I mean, it's just over and over and over. If you want a podcast to help you hate Florida, sorry, Floridians, this is, I mean, it's amazing just how many times they blow it. And the other thing that you just mentioned and how, uh, Leo just never, ever waned from no. his, he just was like, I will not take this plea at any point ever because I did not kill her. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the really amazing things. It's very easy. And he, he even gets some pushback on that from from people, even even inmates, like saying, you could have been out of here a long time ago. Like he definitely could have been out decades ago if he'd have pled to second degree uh, murder, which at the time it would have been with his, you know, he had a no record. He would have been out in like three or four years uh, based on the way sentencing was. So the, he he knew that. Um, he was aware of that. But he just said, I can't plead guilty to a parking ticket. I, it's much easier for me to do the time than to admit to something I didn't do. He's never wavered from that. And that's, you know, that's an easy thing to say. But to actually do it when you're locked up for 35 years, it, it, it shows it's a testament to who he is and his character. Continuing to this day with parole hearings, he would need to admit, you know, that he did a crime in order to be paroled. Is that correct? I mean, yeah. you know, he's sitting there in jail and there's still parole hearings, presumably that he would participate in. Right. And like he comes up like he served his 25 year minimum. He served that 10 years ago. And every two years he comes up for parole again. And he's got, you know, no disciplinary infractions. He's a leader in the prison. He's invented programs. He participates in programs. He run. He basically runs the prison because he's just such a respected figure. He runs the, the, the messianic community and, and God behind bars. But every time he comes up for parole, and even guards who have known him have testified as his character. It's just, it's an unbelievable package. The state attorney will show up and basically a retired state attorney now and just says, that man has shown no remorse. He's never said he's sorry. We can't let him out of prison. And right away, the commissioners go along with that. It's one of the most disturbing parts of the story, um, just to see how cruel the state of Florida is. It's almost like they, they resent him for being litigious. I mean, well, think about it. If somebody's stranger's fingerprint showed up in the car um, that your wife was driving when she disappeared and was killed, like, of course you're going to pursue that, you know? And A murderer. Guy, Right. A murderer's it, fingerprints exactly, were found in that exactly. car. And, and they hold it to him like he's a very litigious defendant. He never lets this case go. Like, what are you supposed to do? Like, any normal person would do that. I want to circle back to that retired public defender. I mean, the, not the, the prosecutor yeah. uh, who, who, who comes back. I definitely have some questions about, about him. But I'm, I'm, I'm further curious about the point at which they, they discover, and this is, this is a, a major part of the, of the podcast, hinges on the fact that suddenly, Another suspect's um, fingerprints, physical evidence, of which for Leo they have none. He's been sitting in jail on zero physical evidence. Right. They find some physical evidence of another, another character, another, another individual, Jeremy Scott. And this was just literally sitting in the evidence pile of the case for what do you say, seventeen years? Yes. 
Yes. And that's nobody the, looked at it. Nobody, nobody scanned them. Nobody looked at it. And, you know, it's just like one of those things where like they just assume all the fingerprints, they're, they're not going to say anything. The, it, Michelle's fingerprints will be in the car. Leo's fingerprints will be in the car. They own the car. So why do we even want to look at the fingerprints? They didn't want to do it because they only saw it as possible bad news. So they just left it there and never, never ran them. Or bad never news compared. for the prosecution. Yeah, right. So they're, they're avoiding, you know, they're just avoiding this because they, this evidence can only hurt them. Right. Um, so they didn't. They didn't want to test it. But the the real problem is, why didn't Jack Edmund like have that? That tested? was that's this right? was my follow up. Right? right. I mean, that's it. It shouldn't be up to just one side to investigate. Absolutely. Right? And you know, at, at one point in his closing argument, Jack Edmund says, "Wouldn't you like to know if someone else's prints were in that car?" Well, dude, they're right there, and they're in the reports. It's, the prosecution handed them over. Um, I think they handed over everything, knowing that Jack Edmund didn't look at any of this stuff. Well, they had to. I, presumably, they. Were, they they were legally bound to hand it over. Yes, uh, a, a, a first year you know a first year law student would have ran the prints. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Also, you, you know, know, one of the cops that arrested Jeremy in the in the murder that he got uh, acquitted of in 1986. You know, this is like a, a year or so before. You know, that he went to trial. He testified. He he knew it was Jeremy Scott. He knew that Jeremy Scott was responsible for killing this woman uh, back in 1985, and Jeremy gets acquitted. And he moves about a mile away from Michelle and Leo Schofield. Like, why wouldn't they just do a like known violent felons in the area? He would have been the top of the list. And Richard Putnell was also the detective who was investigating the Leo Schofield case with Michelle's murder. And so, like, it's to me, it seems inexcusable why they wouldn't do some kind of hand testing about known suspects. Um, but they never did. It's just malpractice up and down. Yes. Right. It I mean, is. It's, it's in every corner of this. Absolutely. In terms of why, the only thing that I glean from everything is they just never wanted to take it back once they said it's probably it's him. They just yeah. it was just always a matter of doubling down to save their to save face. Right. It, yeah, it is shocking how easy it was to do, right? Like just, you know, they get an evidentiary hearing. All you really need is a judge to say, oh, yeah, Jeremy Scott's not credible. And, you know, they have that judge. That judge also happened to work in the same prosecutor's office as the prosecutor, John Aguero, for, for a decade. So there's that home field advantage, you know. Right. So so is the I really want to dive into that part of it. So was the idea that a, we don't want to look into it no matter who it might be. So they didn't know it was Jeremy Scott's prints until Leo's team discovered it, correct? Even the prosecution didn't know. Is that is that the basic I mean, assumption? That's what I want to believe. I mean, it would be awful to know that they knew it was Jeremy Scott and still covered it up. There's no evidence I, I, to suggest I, 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 that. I think it's a coin coin toss. Yeah. Hearing all the all of this surrounding evidence makes it sound like like I'd I'd like to believe that too, right? It's hard to though. Yeah, it is. And especially when you see like I went through all the crime scene photographs of that, you know, drainage canal. And, you know, there's a picture of some Marlboro cigarettes that's just sitting there right near the bloodstains. That Jeremy told, said he had was his brand, right? Right. And and they photographed it, but they never collected it as evidence. I mean, I want to think that it was just sloppy police work because the other side of it is they collected it, saw Jeremy's prints. Didn't like that part for the story. That's th that. That's what I'm trying to really understand is how far back the the actual conspiracy goes. Yeah, I mean, right. It's 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 there's one side of there's one side of the story, and it's the story you tell, which is Leo was given the biggest bum rap you could imagine from all this, from his side of the lawyers that he chose and and their own um, malpractice to to 
uh, a prosecutor who was not really looking for the truth. Okay, so those two things alone can conspire against anyone. But the other side of it is, did they know Jeremy Scott based on his proximity? He was not in jail at that time. They had every reason to not want to highlight the fact that they let someone that they didn't convict a murderer, that a murderer was acquitted who went out to kill again. That would look especially bad for the prosecution's team. That it's like this guy can have. We got to wall this case off from Jeremy Scott. So how much? I, I know there's there. I'm wondering whether you came across any evidence of that part of it. Of like of like uh oh. Well, this should never see the light of day, and so into the into the cellar it goes. Yeah, you know, I never saw any like evidence like that. I just saw things that were like photographed, but never like documented. Like, why are they taking pictures of this evidence at the scene, but not documenting it? And it's just disappearing. It, it seems like it was photographed like evidence, like all the other stuff, but that some of the stuff just never made it into the list. It was just you see these photographs, and, and you know, one of the things that is really important is that. You know, that crime scene was, there was lots of garbage there. And, you know, like one of Jeremy's stories is that after killing Michelle, he wrapped her up in this plastic tarp that he found at the scene and dragged her over there. Well, you know, the prosecution's like, there's no plastic tarp. No, it's right there in the photographs. You can see, I saw three of them. They're right there. Um, That that could have had Michelle's blood on it, could have had Jeremy's fingerprints. Uh, there's footprints all over the scene they never bothered with. They said it would have taken too long. You know, they, they, they make some really weird, you know, detective decisions. Like, we're not going to tear up the, the trailer to find blood um, because it would have damaged the trailer. That was what they actually testified to. Like, really? A woman was stabbed 26 times in there? They can't find blood? Are you going to look a little harder if that's your theory that she was killed there? So there's a lot of weird things happening there. And I I, I just have always just attributed it to sloppiness. I couldn't find anything that really, you know, indicated that they were hiding evidence. Although, you know, when we talked to Jeremy Scott and, and you know, also from the evidentiary hearings, like that prosecutor, John Aguero, went into that room with Jeremy Scott alone. Well, this right. You 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 make you make a huge um, point of of covering that. And did Jeremy give any detail as to what it was just the two of them and, and John Aguero has since passed? So how much did we did we learn from Jeremy about that? Well, you know, one of the things I was really curious was that John Aguero claims that he offered Jeremy Scott full immunity, that if he confessed to Michelle's killing, um, he wouldn't be prosecuted. Um, That's not the kind of immunity you get in this situation. You get what's called use immunity, and it it gives you some immunity, but it doesn't mean you can't be prosecuted. Um, So it tells me that John Aguero was lying. Um, and he did try to lie in that evidentiary hearing, saying that I was always in there with a detective. Um, I talked to that detective. He said unequivocally I was not there. In fact, I was upset that John Aguero brought him in because I was on vacation that week. He was upset that he brought Jeremy Scott into his office and closed the investigation because he hadn't ruled him out as a suspect. And that's in his report. I mean, he wrote that like John Aguero told me that he brought Jeremy in while I was away. So it's there. And he tried to lie about it. So that those little things like I go through this, I never find Leo lying to me. You know, every time I go through it, he says, I'm an open book. My story will never change. I've never find a moment where he's lying, but I have have moments when the prosecutor, I catch him lying. Like, to me, that's a red flag. I think there's a moment for all listeners uh, in this podcast, and it could come early, it could come later, where you become convinced of of Leo's innocence. 
uh, I can't speak for every listener, but I imagine that's the case at some point. For, for, for me, it was when you made clear that his story hadn't changed, right? Everybody's story changes. And if it doesn't change, that's, that's hard to do if you're guilty. It, yeah, so you're absolutely right about it's, that. It's a big point. Yeah. To try to answer what, Dan, what you're asking, the, the like, what was the first, what was the ultimate sin? Was it just sloppiness or was it something else? Remind me, Gilbert, where in the timeline this prosecutor allegedly ha- had that meeting? Yeah, so the fingerprints were discovered or identified to Jeremy Scott in 2004. Um, in early 2005, that's when Jeremy was was interviewed by detectives, cold case detectives, and ultimately um, met with um the prosecutor, John Aguero. And, you know, the prosecutor basically says, I looked him in the eye. He told me he didn't do it. And I believe him. And he closed the investigation. I mean, this is a man who's killed, well, four people um, who they were aware they prosecuted him twice for murder. And now they're saying, well, you can believe this. You can't believe anything else he says, but you can believe when he says he didn't kill Michelle. Makes no sense. The murders were in the same area around the same time period. Yeah, exactly. Kind of on a killing spree. I mean, he really was. I mean, he was only free for like two years, 87 and 88. And we found four people that he killed. That uh, we you know, know of. And there's one more that I'm not absolutely convinced he's not responsible for. And that was one of the things I was hoping to get another interview with Jeremy because I had a lot more to talk to him about. But Amazing. Amazing. And, and you know, um, for, for me and, and where you're, the, the team of you and Kelsey doing your investigative work, I mean, it was so thorough and respectful, frankly, of all parties involved of like, look, we're not doing this any justice or any, we're not helping anybody if we don't do this absolutely all the way. You interviewed Jeremy's girlfriend from, from back from the eighties or, or that, that time period. And it's fascinating. Some of the, it's not just fascinating as a listener, but it's also infuriating, you know, as a citizen, just how many, um, impossibilities of of coincidental nature you uncover just by talking with her oh he'd taken me there we've you know we made out in that right by that creek where michelle was found jeremy knew exactly where that spot was he knew how to get there it was familiar to him i mean things like that plus also his violence and his just all of these things that were i mean you're uh, rubbing my temples as i'm listening to this thing just how how valuable that information is what what was that like of both tracking her down and finding her as well as just uncovering all this well you know it's really interesting because there's part of me that wants to say we we almost did two podcasts because we really did a whole jeremy scott thing um you know we went episode five is all about jeremy scott um i I love that episode because we kind of go into his world so we take this cue from his girlfriend jamie nelms who says you know he he told me he killed a cab driver but got away with it and like i that's in the that's in the transcript it's in the on the tape like it's there i'm like well, who is this cab driver? And so we set out looking for that. And sure enough, we end up finding a cab driver that is close enough. It's at a time where we know Jeremy's not in prison. It's in a town where he knew, we knew he lived. And so we started going into that and investigating that town of Intercession City. And, you know, I loved it. It was like my rabbit hole on this. I really just loved going down there and talking to people and and and, and just getting in touch with people and, and tracking down his family, his old friends, people he used to hang out with. Some We talked to people who he sexually assaulted who were willing to talk to us about that. And so, you know, we learned a lot about Jeremy. And the more you learn about Jeremy, the more you're convinced that 
this is the guy. Um, and, and that was the thing that risked, like, you know, the violence that we found. We're talking with people who were exposed to this violence, whose families were ruined by Jeremy's violence. And that was the really depressing part of that part of the investigation was, you know, these ripples were still out there. We're looking at people whose lives were totally disrupted, lost a family member. Um, and then you think, well, Leo's in prison because of Jeremy Scott. Um, there's so many ripples of pain uh, that that come out from Jeremy's story, and, and that's the, the thing that's really difficult to deal with. There are, and, and Jeremy's, Jeremy as a character here is, I don't know what it is. It's Greek tragedy, it's Shakespearean, I'm not sure which, as, as an individual, just as a human being, because he's both, he's both the villain, obviously, Um even even without Michelle as part of the story, he's clearly a, a, a bad dude, and really had a never never had a chance in life, which I think you you illustrate um, very graciously, frankly, in, in by being honest about his own upbringing, and everything stacked against him, and and you see how it played out, and then you get to the Michelle Schofield part of it, um, which is like a footnote in Jeremy's life, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, among everything else, but um um um. Just curious. Uh, my my question on this has to do with whether, you know, what's it like, kind of dealing and almost collaborating with someone as as awful as Jeremy, knowing that he's also the key to Leo's to proving Leo's innocence to some degree. Yeah. Can Can you describe? I mean, you, you you give the whole the synopsis, his background, all of that. I'm just wondering if you can just sort of give your own description of him. And I had one question for that. Which mm-hmm. is, you get a lot of descriptions about him that are about his intelligence, his lack of it, mm-hmm. um, suggestions that there's, uh, you know, um, disability, perhaps. Um, what what did you? I I will say just because listening to him, he was a lot of things, but I didn't get that he was mentally disabled. Yeah, I'm just I- so I'm just curious what you got. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, we went through his psych reports and, you know, obviously they measured his IQ at like around 80, which, you know, is borderline what they called back in the day, borderline mentally retarded. So that was the level. That's how they described an 80 IQ. Um, you know, he's definitely got a learning disability. You know, I, I found his letters to be actually pretty good. Um, when, but when I looked at his earlier stuff, it wasn't quite on par. Um, but I think meeting him and talking to him, he's definitely got some kind of mental disability. He's a little bit slow. Um, there's certain things that just take him a while to sort of really process and find the right words for. And I think part of that was from, you know, according to the psych reports, you know, he was in the care of his grandmother and grandfather. Grandfather had a drinking problem, apparently, and and uh, Jeremy kind of wandered off into the road at, like, age two and got hit by a car. And they said he, you know, suffered some frontal lobe damage from that accident. And, you know, he admits that he's, you know, he says, I got a history. Um, he, he does admit to, to learning disabilities and dropping out of school, basically in fourth grade and living on the streets. Um, but I, I will say, like, our interactions with him live, I, th- I found him to be more personable than I expected and more conversational than I expected. And I think that was the key to that interview because 
Every time we'd heard him talk, he was either being interrogated by detectives or on the witness stand where he's a hostile witness. So it's a lot of yes and no answers. He's upset. He's he's off his meds. He's in a psych cell. You know, he says, I'm, I'm here for this hearing, you know, in a psych cell where I'm just laying on a cold floor eating with my fingers. And he just wants to go back to his prison and be, where he's treated, you know, I guess better. Um, so this is a real stressful thing and he just doesn't want to be there. Um, but with us, you know, he said, I have some things I want to talk about. I have a story to tell. I don't know how. And so we just sort of let that be our cue. Like you tell us what happened that night. Tell us, you know, everything you want. Um, and he was very focused and I, there was no doubt. I can tell you when you're in there listening to him, you can see his emotions when he's dealing with memory. This is not some guy making up a story. You can really feel it. He's processing these things. He gets choked up. He admits to being tormented by his past. And that kind of remorse is like the kind of remorse that the prosecutor is looking for from Leo Schofield. Well, you're never going to get it from Leo. Here's where the remorse is. It's Jeremy Scott. Listen to what he's saying. This is a man who's, who's suffering from his crimes. That was the impression I got. Yeah. There's that hearing that you focus on where this is after Jeremy's come to light to the Schofield case. Um, it seems like it's the maybe the last best chance for Leo to get a new trial. And they have that John Aguero's gone and there's that that new prosecutor. Um, I forget her name. Exactly. Oh, Victoria Avalon. Right. Victoria Avalon. Who, I mean, on one hand, I suppose she's doing her job. On the other hand, um, there's this, she's showing Jeremy the photos. And it, it, the decision in this case, which of course did not go Leo's way, seemed to hinge, correct me if I'm misinterpreting, on Jeremy, after a full confession and description, looking at the photos and saying, I didn't do that. Right. Now, you did something interesting in the production where you played the raw, the original audio first mm -hmm. and the listener can hear it. And then you describe how that's how it was kind of twisted and perceived in terms of the ruling. When I listened to it, I heard him say, I didn't do that. Meaning like I did a lot of things. I did everything I said, but that and you're talking about a woman who's you know, three days underwater and right. this horribleness of uh, a, a body left for dead. Um, that you can imagine that he's not saying, I didn't do any of that. <laughs> he's saying, oh, that that bloated, you know, young lady or that disfigured fate. I mean, when you're three minutes after a crime and you get the hell out of there or whatever he did is very different. And it's very honest to say, I didn't like, I didn't do all that. Right. Right. And if you lack the intellectual capacity to understand what you're seeing. Yes. Right. Like how yeah. did this be like, nobody yeah. did that. He did that, but he doesn't yeah, even, he's not he saying when I left her, she was fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's, right. He's, 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 but there's a, just an inflection of that term and everything hinges on that apparently, or at least they, Reverse justified it to make it sound that yeah, way. Yeah, like he recanted. It, like I did. Right. I mean, was that was it? I suppose it was because you portrayed it this way. But it seemed just a blatant type of willful disregard for the the, the obvious meaning of what he said. No. Yeah, I think it was used by the state to sort of say, "Oh, here he goes again." He says he didn't do it now, and they just misinterpret it because he goes 
three minutes later, he goes back on on redirect from from Leo's lawyers. And like nothing's changed. He he still admits to killing her. He just says, I didn't do that. And I, I thought about that for a while because I was I, I didn't know how much I wanted to really describe the wounds because it's horrific. It doesn't you know, if something is sitting in water, it I think my impression of it, it looks a lot different than a fresh killing. Right. And Jeremy, like you said, not very sophisticated. He's looking at that. And he's saying, I didn't do that. Also, I have to remember this, you know, like this is a, te- a technique that police use with, with suspects. They'll throw the picture, they'll try to get a response, you know, and if a guilty man sees it, he's going to get weird or something, they'll know. Well, that's exactly what Jeremy did when they showed him those pictures. He's looking at his work and it's upsetting to him. And, and that's the thing you have to remember. It's because he did that. And I, there was a line that when we were talking to him that I, I think I think it's in the podcast, but it's just very subtle underplayed he, you know he's talking about the knife that he got how he took it from one of his uncle's you know sons he said it was a pair of knives I took one of them and he goes that thing wasn't that sharp it hadn't been sharpened I didn't think it would do that much damage he that's when he's talking about that photograph when he sees because that wound is significantly distorted because of I think being underwater and being exposed and it's not what you would normally think and he's thinking I, I didn't do that much damage I didn't do that maybe maybe the gators got her or the snakes got that you know like I think that's the way his mind was working yeah and, and it sounded that that's why I'm saying it's interesting how you played it before you described how 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 much hinged on that statement because when when the listener hears it it's like yeah it's just as you described it i didn't do that i didn't do all that right right you know and you know it's just it's just a matter of fact way he went right back to to talking about how he killed michelle like he doesn't even realize that they think he recanted he's just saying no i didn't do that you know that's no from no but it's sort of the power of a transcript which does not carry any of that inflection to say, look, here it is in black and white. I didn't do that. Exactly. We're exactly. done here. You know? Yeah. And that's how it was played out. And, he, you know, he gets accused of, like, changing his mind. And, you know, they, the prosecution does a lot of weird things with Jeremy Scott. They constantly say, well, he, you know, he did tell the investigators that he would confess to a murder even if he didn't commit it for $1,000. Well, yeah, he said that, but he already confessed when he said that he'd already confessed. So clearly it's not true, but they use that kind of stuff to just they sort twist of twist themselves into a pretzel. Yeah. To justify just to, to destroy his credibility. And, you know, I found him to be very credible when I interviewed him because the stories he was, he was telling us were just really very factually accurate. Um, the stuff that he never would have known um, to talk about because it hadn't been out there. And, you know, let's no, he face described it. the murder in great detail. Oh yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and, you know, the fact that they're just dismissing him, it just tells me that they're just protecting a conviction. So you mentioned earlier this, um, and who is this, a this fellow who comes back for the parole hearings? This is a, a, represent, represent, a representative of the prosecution, right? Yes. What was his name? His name was Jerry Hill, and he's uh, he's the elected state attorney for like 32 years. So he was there throughout the whole Schofield. He only retired, I think, in 2016 or 2017, but he comes out of retirement just to go, well, show he up. He is to right out of Central Cast. Oh, yeah. Point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, Kelsey had to interview him because he wouldn't talk to us when we requested. So she just kind of showed up and stuck yeah, a mic in his face. A little. Yeah, and, great. You know, it was a great interview because I, 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 I've been working with Kelsey for years at this point, And I knew that she knew the case inside out. And I, I kind of felt sorry for him. I said, if he tries to do any of that stuff, misrepresenting the facts, she's going to kill him. And, uh, you know, that's, that's exactly what, what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't know some, some really elemental, 
piece of of the case and she pounced on his lack of knowledge that he he you know brushed away right yeah he and he's constantly using you know he describes jeremy as just a just a thief and a punk well your office prosecuted him twice for murder where's this thief punk stuff coming from you know yeah and he and he beat you and i'm sure you don't like to be reminded oh yeah they don't like that at all yeah oh goodness oh my gosh it's it, it was to me that was another true tentpole moment of the of the series was was hearing um you know Kelsey who you know we 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 get to know her story along the way and of course we're rooting for both of you and and we hear her there and it's sort of like you know that's the the tri- one of the triumphant parts of of the story uh w- within everything else is just hearing how how you know d- despite all the gravitas that that a prosecutor would have okay um and the st- and the attorney would have um she just undercuts it with the facts in a way that suddenly you know everything kind of clears away it's all the bullshit just goes away yeah you're absolutely right and i, I there's a question that she asked which i just you know it just sort of like one of the crux of the whole case you know they're saying well he's jeremy scott's just a stereo thief just a stereo thief well here you know this guy's killed four people um and so like you can't just say he's just a car stereo thief and so she asked him like couldn't he be a car stereo thief and a murderer like you know he was in his other cases when he murdered and stole the car or and why he's going to be in jail the rest of his life as it right, is for a murder right yeah. and so it's just like they the, they won't consider that because it doesn't fit their narrative but so he has to acknowledge like well of course theoretically that could be the case like theoretically why don't you look into his background he does this every time <laughs> It really does just come back to the, the only thing that makes sense, which is they just came up with what they decided was the answer. They were absolutely terrible at their jobs. And then everything that came after that was just to cover up for that we don't make mistakes here in 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 this realm. <laughs> we just, we didn't, it's all just covering up and about looking good. That's really interesting because, you know, it, it all comes down to really like, how do you put a case like this together? They have this one witness, Alice Scott, who's like the neighbor who lives across the street, who claims to have seen everything happen that night, you know, and just, you know, everything. Yeah. On she the wrong right night, there. in the wrong time. In the, yeah. Right. And, and, and it's just like the whole case is really hinged on that. Like because of what she says, the crime scene had to be the trailer because that's where she heard, you know, this big fight and she saw Leo carrying out something she thought was a heavy object, possibly a body, right? So now that Aguero and the state is kind of pinned into, well, that's our crime scene. Well, problem, there's no blood at the crime scene. Like if she stabbed 26 times, there's not one drop of blood in the crime scene. Where's all the blood? It's back at the canal on the ground, right where Jeremy Scott Where says, Jeremy said, right. Know? And so like if you look at this from the outside, it's just kind of mind-boggling that somebody could still be in prison for this. But that's really what the post-conviction process looks like in a lot of states but it's so interesting as you started out by saying you know before Jer- before you even knew about jeremy scott i presume you read the the trial transcript right and you said it was evident without any of this jeremy scott stuff yeah even before even even to a to someone who only knows how to, you know knows half the story of what he's reading the the prosecution was was sloppy and ineffective and 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 obviously the his uh, 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 Leo's counsel was was ineffective as well, and it was just a comedy of errors, unfortunately. So you knew that, and and the second part is that what you just described about you know backing themselves into a story. To me, it's still what sticks out is is they're not just covering up for a sloppy job. 
but that somehow they're covering up for for a, for a real miscarriage of of justice on their own of of a of something where they literally did and again I I, I can't say this with evidence and you've said it, it isn't apparent but they're covering up for something that like they literally cannot be caught with whatever happened here um it's not just bad police work or 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 a botched investigation it's kind of like they can't find out what I told Jeremy, one on what John Aguaro told Jeremy. We can't find out that we knew about that fingerprint and didn't tell. You know, what something along those lines that just is, is, is described that um, accounts for the urgency with which they seem to have with keeping Leo in prison. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the most disturbing things when I, when I see this case and just follow it all the way through. And, you know, like, they misrepresent a lot of the evidence and they puts it they put it in their briefs they're answering briefs to respond to like these evidentiary hearings like leo says hey there's another man's fingerprints in the car and then they answer with a brief and the brief is misrepresenting a lot of the evidence and what happens is that brief gets before a judge and the judge is basically a lot of the times so they just like Trust the prosecutor. Okay, here's the prosecutor's Take it at face value. Right. So it's like this game of telephone that you see constantly. Like, there's these facts that are making it into these reports that are not facts. They're not evidence, but they've been, you know, misinterpreted or, and, and what, you know, they always say, oh, it's an innocent mistake, harmless error. That's the language they use when that stuff happens. You never see a harmless error that ever benefits Leo. Like I'm, these guys aren't stupid. They they know what they're doing. And and define uh, harmless. Like like it's there's clearly harm happening uh, from all these errors and and all these uh, like you said malpractice. Dan, you know like ugh. look, I, I I would imagine that in in ninety percent of the counties across the country, there are shortcuts that allow the prosecution to put guilty people in jail with by the book would not be enough evidence, right? I, I, I'll just say this as a citizen. I don't have any special knowledge, but I imagine that that line of work is just sort of like left and right. You're making justifications to say, listen, we, we know he's the guy, <laughs> you know, we know everything points to him. Some things have been ruled out. We have to cut a corner here. We have to make it look a certain thing. So in and of itself, kind of doing the things that put the thumb on the scale for the prosecution it's it's not right, okay, in a legal sense, but it's probably done every day. And I and and for, for I wouldn't begin to guess what the numbers are, but more often than not, they're probably putting the right person behind bars in in you know across across many many cases. So 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 there's a justification there that I'm sure gets made, and sort of everyone sleeps at night. In this case, it, it seems like they were aggressively you know covering up for. Either their own misdeeds or, or, or the decisions that put them in this box. And, um, you know, Leo just becomes the, he gets the world crashed down on him for all of this. And I wanted to talk about Leo for a second because he's the one who somehow shows the grace in all of this. And I'm sure that it, we know it wasn't always that way. You do a great job of describing his, his process. Hi, this is Roberta Lip. My partner, Dan Jasper, and I do this podcast about Mad Men. We go episode by episode. So far, we've gone all the way through season six. If Mad Men is your thing, check us out. If you already know that about us and you're a regular listener, hit us up with a great review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's a clip 
from one of our very first shows, we have come a long way. I'm not confused by why he went. I'm confused why she didn't sign the door in his face. I've never been confused about that. Fair enough. You're right. You're right. It's not inevitable. I would have done it. <laughs> I would have done it. Me with my 20-year-old self-esteem. Dripping wet, drunk, yeah. Pete Campbell on yes. bachelor party. Absolutely. This case has gotten a lot of attention in the past year or two, and, and this podcast has, has done a lot of that. But what's, what's the status right now for Leo? And um, I also want to talk about Leo's own grace in regards to Jeremy, which yeah. is an amazing part of your, your discussion. Yeah, you know, that was part, the part of the very first interview when we went in to talk to him. You know, he wanted to talk about that war room. Um, and, and that's where he went and prayed for Jeremy. Pray, because it, it was just this whole thing was just eating him alive. The fact that somebody else had killed his wife and he's in prison for it. And, you know, I don't know how I would feel or do in that situation, but I would imagine there's a great deal of bitterness, anger. You're working through a lot of things. And I think Leo figured out that like a lot of exonerated men that I've talked to have figured out, like they can't let this kill them. They have to find another way. And so spiritually he goes into this war room and he, he starts saying, I need to learn to forgive Jeremy because I'm going to, it's going to kill me. And then he prays to God and he says, and I want, I want God, I want you to forgive him too. Um, you know, this is a man who's never known love in his life. I have a family. I have all these people that believe in my innocence. Jeremy has nothing, has nobody. And that's just who Leo is. And, you know, he says, look, I want, I want the truth. I want, and Jeremy has the truth. And that's, I want him to be able to speak freely and to, and to do this because clearly Jeremy is doing this not only for Leo, he's doing it for himself. And, and Leo recognizes that. And I think, you know, he's like the only person in the story who has any empathy for Jeremy Scott. Um, and that, that's, you know, that he really guided us on how we wanted this, this story to unfold was really, we were taking our cues from Leo and how Leo felt. And, and it was, it was really moving to see that and to see that grace, um, from a man who spent 35 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He's really special. And, and he's a flawed, I mean, there's plenty of things we're not getting into, just so you know, if you have not yeah. listened to this podcast, there's plenty there for you. We didn't touch her father. We didn't touch, you know, there's just lots of little <laughs> things to pepper this with. Yeah. But, um, and some of that is is Leo's own, you know, their relationship was was physically violent. And right. that sounds, that sounds not like I'm blaming him. He would hit her. There yeah. were things that happened, like, yeah. for sure. This is not a, a an angel that we're talking about, but he is really special. I mean, he is. And I, I, I you know, like, this is a part of his path. One time I interviewed him and I, I just, it was a real casual kind of exchange that we had. And he, he basically said, Gilbert, all right, so just imagine you at 21 and this moment of your life that you're not proud of becomes the defining moment in your life. Like you didn't go on to write any books. You didn't go on to do anything else in your life. And all anything wants to talk to you about is this moment in your life where you're convicted of a murder and your, you know, your life is examined with this relationship that, you know, only with her for six months, really. Um, and so, you know, they're young kids. I'm not excusing any. He's the one that admitted to slapping her. He said it twice. And these were times where there were no witnesses. He just said, I did this. Um, but I think, you know, and we, I couldn't really get into it in the podcast for certain like legal reasons and ethical reasons, but 
I can tell you that some of the testimony that came up in the in the bad character testimony that twenty one witnesses a lot of that yeah, was, it was like not the true. entire case yeah, yeah. And, and you know we did some research on that and a lot not a lot of that wasn't all true um, and so I can't really go into it in, into depth but there there are reasons we can't do it but there there you know I I at one point one of the witnesses said he saw Leo with a knife stab himself in the leg and draw blood and. You know, I asked Leo about that and he said, I was furious. That never happened. And my own attorney, I wanted him to stay, pull down your pants and let's see that scar. Because he goes, I have no scars on my leg. That was just not true. And and so some of the things that occurred, he, he absolutely denies them. And the one thing I will say about Leo... Makes you wonder how a prosecution team gets people to say those things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot like you just described a couple of minutes ago. You, you know, like we got the right guy. He's in prison. He's a bad guy. We, the state, know he did it. We need your help. Do you remember anything that you might have seen him do? Anything, you know, and that's how it, it happens that way. That I, I can see it. Um, and, and witnesses have told us similar stories. But, you know, one of the things that talking about Leo and how special he is, you know, when we, when we started talking to him, one of the things he said, look, everything in my life, is, op- is an open book. I will answer everything. I will not avoid it. And there was a moment where I thought, if I catch him like trying to mislead me or I'm, I'm done, I'm not going this route. I'm just not going to do that for someone who's not telling me the truth. And I've never found him to say one single thing that like I couldn't say was true. Everything he's led me down, like he, he knows he has the truth on his side. Um, and, and, and at one point, you know, he said to me, this was fairly recently, you know, he was like thanking me for getting his story out there. And, you know, he's talking about the responses that he's getting in the prison from, you know, guards and, and administrative staff who were, you know, really emotionally touched by his story because they didn't know any of it. You know, they don't talk about that in prison. And he said to me, Gilbert, you know, I want to thank you. And I, I, there's nothing I can give you. I don't have anything to give you except this. I know you're putting your reputation on the line to tell my story. The one thing I can give you as a gift is that this is never going to come back at you to be wrong. You're not wrong about this. And that's the only thing I can give you. No one can ever come back and say, you missed this story. We found this. It's wrong. He goes, I'm giving you the truth. And there's moments when you hear somebody say that. It's not necessary to say that. But he did it. And, you know, he'd have to be like, you know... Uh, Daniel Day Lewis, the actor, or 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 like a, just a total psychopath, and he's neither. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think as a listener, I mean, I don't know how you how you spend thirty years in prison and don't sound defensive, talking for what I presume was hours on end. And as a listener, you would pick up on something. I think we all, anybody would. I I, I know I would. And you couldn't. You from the moment you introduced him to the entire the way through, um, not not a, a hint of being defensive about of, of his story of how he told it of, of why he may have done something he did or bad decisions or whatever. He lays it all out there and you just, you know, it's, it's, it's a gut instinct as much as anything um, to, to know that he's, 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 he's truly honest. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. So, so what could, what can, what can people do, Gilbert? I mean, I know I signed a petition when I learned about it and, and contributed to to the cause, but but w- tell us about what what can be done and also just what the hope is that that there is for Leo at this point because he's out of appeals, he's really out of uh, out of a, the legal process has gone as far as it can go. So where do where do we go? 
Yeah, and that's the horrible part of it. Like the only thing that could really help Leo at this point in in the judicial system is the discovery of new evidence. Um, you know, I don't know what more you could really get in terms of new evidence. You f- have this man who's physically linked to the crime scene who has confessed multiple times in detail. In, in specific detail about what happened that night, you know, describing conversations and, and all of it kind of lines up, you know. Um, and, and so there's not going to be any new evidence that comes forward unless maybe they find, you know, fingerprints, uh, you know, on a tarp somewhere. I, don't, I just don't. I to don't inspire a new trial altogether. Right. Yeah. And then, like, I don't even think like there could be like DNA testing that could be done on this, on these objects. I'm not sure about it, but you know, I don't know if that they were preserved in the best way. Um, and so I'm not even sure that will happen. So yeah, he's kind of down to parole and clemency Two, those are the two options. Um, if, if the state decides not to resist, um, the parole, he could technically be paroled, um, in the spring, which would probably lead him to, um, a different facility, like a low, uh, low security facility for six months and then maybe a halfway house, something like that, but it would be a way out. Um, so that's a possibility that maybe the state just says, look, we're not going to keep fighting this parole. It's bad publicity or whatever, which I think it would be bad publicity because we're going to be down there. Um, but, uh, yeah, but you know, aside from that clemency from the governor, um, it's a really hard thing. Yeah. You know, it's difficult because, you know, I, I think it's obvious that he's, got his eyes on running for, you know, president, right? This is, we're talking about Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, but for, you know, this, for I, this minute, at least, he's the front runner. Yeah. By all and the so, polls. you know, do, do you want to start getting involved in these kind of causes where you're just releasing people from prison on clemency? Like, maybe not. I don't know. It's but, a tough look. Yeah. yeah. But I will say, like, having, you know, when I wrote Devil in the Grove, that came out, there was some political movement. Um, People started saying they, they, you know, it was during the election, people started saying we, we need to take care of this. You know, this is a gross injustice from the state. And, you know, Governor DeSantis said that if, if he's elected, um, uh, one of the first things he'll do is address this. And true to his word, I think he was in the office two days. He called the clemency hearing and ended up pardoning the Groveland Four, which was, you know, a, a, an abomination of justice from 72 years earlier. But, you know, there was no political price for doing that. I was going to say, yeah, that was that was. That, that that's a feel good story, exactly. Uh, but yeah, there's no nothing's on the line for him in that one, right? And I, you know, I'd like to think that Leo would be the same way. I think you know, so many people listen to this podcast and are absolutely convinced that an innocent man is in prison. Um, you know, maybe there's a way for for the state to just sort of you know address this and just you know at least release him. Um, maybe he doesn't have to be exonerated right away. Although I, I think I have a feeling he'll never quit on that fight. But, you know, the most important thing is to liberate him from from prison. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and what's the process for having that happen? Just just a, a I mean, that that that's the was that re- the petition that's out there? Is that where people can encourage that to happen? Yeah. I mean, we have a petition. It's it's done by the Florida um, Innocence Project and they've put it out and it's basically calling on the state attorney in the 10th Circuit to transfer Leo's case to uh, another circuit that has a conviction integrity review unit. Um, these conviction integrity review units are really fascinating because they don't care about appeals that were missed or deadlines or things that were already decided by the courts. They start from scratch, sort of like what Kelsey and I did. We just do a new say, investigation, right? They've got a lot of uh, a lot of work you guys have already done for them. Yeah, and I'd be happy to turn over everything. You know, even you know, there's witnesses that we we we, we know about who didn't want to talk, but you know, they might talk to the state. Um, 
But yeah, I think, you know, if they were to turn this over to any conviction integrity review unit in the state, um, I, I'm convinced they'd come to the same conclusion that Kelsey and I came to. It's just the evidence is just overwhelming. Um, so it just needs to get out of that circuit, I believe. Wow. Wow. And, and, um, when when when's the possibility of that happening is that something where enough signatures get on the petition so they have to look at it or it's just timing undetermined yeah you know it is i i think it, it i don't know how many signatures we need but we would need to really make an impact but we're going to be keep growing that petition and and the, the, i think we're up to like 7500 signatures already um and hopefully we'll have some celebrity endorsements coming and some social media that will help really escalate that and get it out there. Um, we're starting to get some some bigger publicity for Leo's case now. Um, you know, there's been like a lot of these year end lists. And, and so people are like, Bone Valley, what's that? You know, and, and so they come to this story just based on these year end lists. Um, and there's some some um, feature stories that are going to be coming soon. So I, I think it's going to be more and more in the press. Um, it's not going away. And, you were number um, one on, on which list? You were Vulture. On Vulture, right. Yeah, right. That was really amazing. I, um, I And I've always, uh, every year I check a few of those lists and pick pick some new podcasts. So like, oh, that sounds really good. And I, yeah, you know, I do the same thing. I, <laughs> I use those lists. <laughs> yeah, they're they're great. A, a lot of times I just like, wow, how did I miss this one? I don't even know about this one. And so I think that comes to a lot of people. But, you know, I think with more and more people, and I, and I have to say, like, there are people who are contacting me who are like powerful in Florida. Um, the same thing kind of happened with my book, Devil in the Grove. I was getting like people like Marco Rubio's chief of staff saying, hey, watch the news tonight, you know, and I'm like, oh, what's this about? And there's Marco Rubio on the Senate floor, you know, saying, you know, it's now the Groveland Four must be exonerated. And, and so all these little things that we're doing out there, sort of behind the scenes, reaching out Drum to beat. people. Drumbeat. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's been some powerful people that have said, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to let Governor DeSantis know about this case, you know, and so we've had a f- several people that, you know, donors and people like that who are connected, who are bringing it to atten- the attention of, of the public. And, um, you know, hopefully something like that will make a difference. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is really compelling. And and you and Kelsey just deserve all the credit in the world, not not just for bringing it to, to our attention, which is such a, a great thing. But but frankly, it's your storytelling capabilities and your narrative are Unbelievable. I mean, it's such a story well told that um, you know. I I know I couldn't I couldn't stop listening, and I'm I'm not a true crime. I'm not out there listening to every true crime thing. Me it literally just hit my radar and was like, all right, let's give the and just you know, ten minutes in, I'm like, okay, this is I'm I'm gonna stay with this one. I mean, I'm just so glad to hear that because honestly, I would just say like, you know, it, it's all new to us. So I didn't, I really was bringing in <laughs> like structuring for how I write my narrative nonfiction books, you know? So I, I felt like I like that format. Is there a way to translate that? So we don't have a lot of like, you know, dialogue and speculating and, and just chat. We're, it's pretty tight and we, we do move it through. I mean, I know it's almost 10 hours, um, but if I told you how much footage and how much we had a lot of material to work with. Oh, it was really hard to really cut that down. Uh, there's stuff that didn't make it into the podcast, which I'm still like, how is that not in there? You know? <laughs> so is there, you mentioned the fact that you were on a book that got interrupted with, with Leo's case. Have you either returned to that book or is there, and, or is there another podcast subsequent to this one for you? 
I, you know, obviously I, I do want to get back to that book. Um, but I have to say I've so much enjoyed the whole collaborative effort, um, working with a team because it's not usually like that. I'm, it's very solitary doing the research myself and, you know, I might have some help with some researches here and there, but mostly it's me just doing it all. Um, in this case, we had like these young producers who just and and sound designers who just you know that was the Lava for Good team. Oh yeah, uh, oh, that was wonderful. amazing. We were all on the same page, and it just everybody contributed, and it just made it better and better. And I just I love their aesthetics and their taste, and that was really important to me. Like I knew that I I wanted to tell this story a certain way, but I needed help from people who understand this. And it just was really a perfect collaboration. I really loved it. I, I said to these guys, I'm going to find another story so I can work with you again because I loved it so much. Um, and then this one will well, we not love hearing take, that too. Yeah, yeah. And I promise you, we're not going to take four years to get this one. Next one. done. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, the stories that you write, some of them can't wait. I mean, they're, they're truly, truly uh, inspired stories of people that just need help. And um, you know, this one was, was just an unbelievable thing to listen to it's all i can uh, say dan it's so it's kind of you i really appreciate it it's it's a pleasure talking to you but it's just like it's so nice to talk to people who have actually listened and have like questions about things that i've never talked about before so it's that's really interesting when you come up with something like that we've got a little drum but we bang it as loud as we can yeah, we you thank go. you so much for your time and and for and for yeah talk, getting into some things that weren't on the it didn't make the original series and you know, keep us posted if you want to. And, you know, we'll be listening either way. If there are updates, we are definitely interested. (laughs) We have, we have a, um, we have a, another bonus episode coming out, which is going to be sort of like a real episode, um, from, I don't want to say what it is, but there's been kind of a newer development. Um, and so that will be out in mid January. I can tell you that. Um, so if something else is coming and, uh, I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna be pretty interesting. So that's exciting. That's exciting for sure. <laughs> Do you want to um, give a plug for the petition or where people can go? And I'll yeah, sure. So if you're interested in signing the petition, it's up by change.org. Um, all you got to do is just Google uh, Leo Schofield change.org and you'll come right to that petition. We can um, link to it in show notes too. Let's yeah. do that. Oh, that, that'd be great. And you know, as far as your other question about what else there, we, there's some other things in the works that, his defense are putting together. And I think that'll be the next stage. So there are more things coming right now. It's just that petition, but there'll be more coming. Well, we hope, we hope to see you celebrating with Leo, uh, his freedom someday. Absolutely. As soon as possible. Yeah. We're, we're very hopeful for that. And we'll, we'll, we'll remain hopeful. That's the real end of the story that we're hoping for. Yeah. A little podcast listener tip to our listeners. Uh, you always want to stay subscribed or following your podcast, even when it ends. <laughs> That's right. As we're, exactly. as we're approaching our final season, I'll say that because you never know when something's going to, I mean, I do, I'm subscribed to everything I've ever listened Things to. Things just pop up like, huh, For that, ex- a, for oh, that new there. bonus, ex- you know, for that, for those updates, you never know. Yeah. 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 Thanks for mentioning it, Roberta. I never even thought to say that. So now I'm going to remember that, but thank you. That's a great subscribe, point. Subscribe, subscribe. I just yeah. made it up. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Gilbert, thank you thank so you. much. This is my awesome. pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you guys, and thank you so much for having me on. I really love this. 